Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 40, recorded on February 11th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you, and it's great to start the week off with some really good news. We have a whole batch of new open source project releases, and let's start with the Mate desktop. Yeah, Mate 1.20, and this is a pretty huge release for them because it finally gets high DPI sorted out. This desktop that's all about the traditional paradigm is going to have one of the first-class implementations of high DPI. I mean, we're talking auto-detection, hinting for cute applications so they also automatically scale up. Even the login screen supports high DPI and automatically detects it. And this is going to be available in Ubuntu Mate 18.04, isn't it? Right, so it's going to be part of Mate 1.20, which will ship in Ubuntu Mate 18.04. And it's one of these features, because they've done it so well, you won't even notice. Because you won't have to do anything. Your desktop will just look right. I must say, it's very appealing to me now. As someone who's been stuck on XFCE, I'll probably be on XFCE again for Ubuntu 18.04. So I'll be on Ubuntu for that. But looking at the way Mate has really developed it's looking really good, and it's it feels like a really solid backup plan for me at this point. So Martin Wimpress joined me on last week's Linux Unplugged, and he really laid out the two-year journey that the Mate project has been on to get the desktop here. And it's incredible work that's gone here because it's involved bringing the desktop up to GTK3, getting the themes and artwork ready, working across multiple projects to get all of this stuff tied together. And this is just really scratching the surface of Mate 1.20. There's tons of other really great features in there. Yeah, significant improvements to window tiling with drag to quadrant, which is useful. And I think another huge one is the global menu support, which they've been working on for a while, but now seems to be fully baked into it. So I know that ex-Unity users are going to be grateful for that one. I think the Mate project very cleverly has been sneaking improvements in there to entice Unity users that are looking for a new GTK home. And specifically, the Ubuntu Mate project has brought a lot of that all together. But speaking of support for global menus and perhaps a totally different desktop for some of those Unity users like me, Plasma has a new release, version 5.12, which also happens to be a long-term support, and I'm using it right now as we do this show. Yeah, I've heard you gushing about this on Linux Unplugged. So here we are several days later. Are you still as happy with it as you were? Happier, yeah. So I've upgraded all of my machines now to 5.12. I've been using KDE Neon User Edition. It's one of those upgrades, really, where if you didn't know it was happening, you almost would have noticed nothing. Just a couple of things got better. Probably my favorite thing I noticed right away is I can now highlight the notification text when, when notifications come up which that system in itself has gotten really good in the last few Plasma desktop releases. I'm really picky about notifications, and I have that thing dialed in. And so when things come up and I can highlight text from it, love it. It was one of those features I just stumbled across. It was intuitive. It was the kind of thing that thrills you when you run into it. And another big one is Night Color, which now works on Wayland, doing the same job that Redshift does with X, which makes the screen kind of have a more ready tint at night and a bluier tint in the morning, which I know a lot of people use. So that's really good to see that they're pushing this Wayland stuff forward. And it's not just that, is it? I mean, they really are concentrating on Wayland now. 
I use that feature, love it, have not tried it on Plasma yet. I really recommend it. If your phone supports that or your desktop supports it, GNOME desktop supports this as well. Or like Joe said, you could install Redshift. Try that out. But yeah, so this is an interesting feature because they're touting it as a Wayland exclusive. Welcome to our new Wayland reality, everybody, where now we have features that you only get when you use Wayland. And it makes sense. I understand why when you're implementing something like this. I like it, actually. You know, in a way, I kind of wish Plasma would get worse and worse rather than better and better because I'm inevitably going to have to switch away from XFC at some point, I think. The development is just too slow. It's not going to catch up with GTK3 and Wayland. I'd love to be proven wrong on that because I really want to stay on it. But my backup plan has always been Mate, right? But now looking at Plasma, it seems like it's got equally as mm-hmm. much to offer and I just feel so conflicted if I'm going to make a change yeah, I could try one or the other, but I just I can't see myself picking between them because they seem to be, in different ways, just great desktops. Well, let me tell you two things. Number one is this Wayland support that they're baking in now is officially in an LTS release, which means they're going to be working and improving this for years. That's going to make their Wayland support top-notch just in itself. But the second thing, podcaster to podcaster, there is a feature that I love – You know when you're doing a show and all of a sudden one of your applications or a tab in your browser just goes crazy and starts playing music or starts making noise? Yep, I know that nightmare scenario. Well, one of the great things in Plasma Desktop now is applications that are currently playing audio are now marked with a little speaker icon down in the task manager. And you can right-click on it, just like in in modern browsers tabs, you can right-click on it and mute the entire application from the task manager. Boom, kill it. Nice. That's a feature I'd love to have on XFCE, yeah. But it's not just desktops getting major releases this week, is it? There's also VLC, which is 3.0.0. A huge release of VLC this week. Let's just go down some of my favorite features right off the top of my head. We now have Chromecast support built in. If you've got one of those, that's pretty handy. But the number one feature for me, now that I'm coincidentally on the Plasma desktop, it supports playing files from over network shares, like an SMB share. So GNOME users, when you would browse your network and you double-click on a Samba share that maybe has your files in it, in the background, GNOME uses GVFS to mount that to your local file system, and then applications just think they're browsing a folder way deep in your home directory, and they launch the file. But on the Plasma desktop, there's this whole KIO and KO slave system where it's making a remote connection to the server, and it's aware that it's a remote connection, and it doesn't do this back-end kind of sneaky file system mount. And applications had to be aware of this KIO system, this communication layer. I'm probably getting some of this wrong, but my rough understanding is applications had to write support for it, like maybe Dragon Player. But applications like VLC, if you tried to play a large movie file over network share, in the background the Plasma desktop would begin transferring that file. So in my case, maybe like a 20 gigabyte file would start transferring in the background, filling up the SSD on my laptop, and then once that transfer is complete, would then launch VLC. Now it can pass along the SMB path right to VLC. VLC is SMB aware. Also FTP, SFTP, and others. It'll fire the file right up, no transfer required, streams it over the network. Hallelujah. So you're telling me that video LAN player can now play videos over the LAN. Yeah, yeah. It also now uses OpenGL and Linux for smooth 4K playback. That's another problem I've had trying to play my drone footage on Linux. These are two huge features for Chris personally. (laughs) Yeah, and hardware decoding by default for 8K playback as well and supporting 10-bit HDR. 
And 3D video, they've really upped their game with this release. This is also an LTS release, so that's interesting. And this version of VLC now supports adaptive streaming, also known as Dash, which could make pulling in live streams in VLC a lot smoother of experience, You do, with less buffer, less delay. You know, I've pretty much switched over to GNOME MPV Player, but this is tempting me back now. This is sounding really good, this release of VLC. I've been really enjoying Dragon Player on the Plasma desktop, but I will admit I snap-installed VLC because that was the fastest way I could get version 3.0. And I've been using it all morning, and I'm really liking the new features. It's funny, I find myself installing things that way myself now. That That's the first port of call is check, is there a snap available? Because you know it's pretty much going to be the latest version. And also it's got the advantage that you can have different versions installed at the same time. Yeah, exactly. I did an AB of version 2.2 or whatever it is and 3.0. 3.0 via the snap and the standard version that we've all had now for a while via the distro's repo and was able to verify that, yeah, version 3.0 can do the Samba playback. These things do work better. It's kind of great. Now, I also have both of them installed and they're not really differentiated in my launcher, but I can navigate that. It was intentional. Yeah, and something I would definitely install with a snap is Nextcloud 13. Yeah, version 13 final. We talked about the beta weeks ago, specifically around the video and text chat, but now it's shipped in version 13 as well as a new improved UI, end-to-end encryption, improved performance, and specifically a focus on improved communication with LDAP. Yeah, there's a lot of good features on paper, but I still don't find myself using it. I don't know why, I just feel that Even after 13 versions now, it still can't compete with the likes of Google Drive, really. You know, Joe, there's a quote from Frank in the release notes here, Frank who runs Nextcloud, and it kind of helps frame the project's goals for me. He says, Our forward-looking development strategy is the reason behind our meteoric rise in the market, with a laser-sharp focus on enabling modern employees to be productive while keeping IT in control over the data they've worked on, NextCloud will continue to push the boundaries of what a secure self-hosted file exchange and collaboration platform offers. There's a couple of key points that I take away from that. Number one key point is NextCloud's primary feature is you own the data. It's on-premises. You have complete control over it. That's feature number one. Feature number two is they're moving this platform forward at a breakneck pace, adding features that you would otherwise have to pay for from much larger commercial platforms. And if you only need components of them, they're trying to get them built into NextCloud as fast as possible. What I don't hear in there are terms like platform stability or long-term stability goals. It's, it's just not where they're at yet. Right now, they're in the grow and add feature phase. Yeah. I mean, the the first point is great. And being on-premises, being in complete control of your data, that is what we all want. But as you say, there's not any stability there. And okay, maybe they're going to work towards that. But until they have that, I just can't see myself deploying it in production anywhere. It's just testing for me at this stage. I, I feel that even here we are, 13 versions in, it's still something that I'm testing and evaluating and I'm not comfortable putting into production. I mean, I could just about run it myself, but I definitely wouldn't put it into production for other people because I just don't think it's ready yet, which is a real shame because it's probably the best we have. I know that Noah likes C-File, doesn't he, which I've tried and that's good. And we've got Pidio as well, but they don't offer the same feature set as Nextcloud, but maybe they're just too many features in Nextcloud and they should concentrate more on the core functionality and get that 100% rock solid before they start doing things like this video calling and all of that stuff. 
Well, I would flip it around for consideration and say that perhaps the core core functionality is not file sync but collaboration, calendars, contacts, that sort of stuff, notes, photos, documents that support syncing that stuff to your local file system. So it's sort of a reverse of, I think, what it is. It's just not, they're not in alignment with what your priorities are. Well, you could certainly spin it that way, yeah. Okay, <laughs> let's give them the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. Yeah, no, I got to try. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that they're right or wrong because your requirements are very similar to my requirements and my sentiments are similar to yours. 13 versions in, I'm still testing it. I run it on a droplet, but I don't actually use it as my primary sync system either. In fact, when we're done recording the show... We won't be using the next cloud system I have running on a droplet. We'll be using a commercial platform to transfer the file simply because you and I have just had better experiences. Well, something I had a good experience with today when I tried it out was the new release of Android x86. I say new, it's 7.1 uh, Nougat rather than 8. Point whatever Oreo. Yeah. So it's a little bit behind the times. Yeah, it came out in October of 2016. That is a little more than kind of. Yeah, yeah, but it is good. Um, they've got this new launcher. So when you first boot it up, you've got a choice of launchers, the traditional one, and one called Taskbar, which, as the name suggests, is more of a traditional desktop with windowed applications. And it's not 100% yet because if you maximize a window, there's no way to get it unmaximized. So there's work to do there, but it does feel pretty cool. They've kind of taken some of the the features from Remix OS, which is no longer available, and they've made something that's suitable for touchscreen devices or for a device that's using a mouse. But there's that big thing hanging over it. This is a very old version of Android. It's taken them over a year, kind of, well, 18 months nearly, to get this version of Android to a stable release. And that doesn't look good for the project, does it? I'd like to hear more about your thoughts having tried it, because I did not get a chance to run it. But my response to that would be, it's really about the Play API, isn't it? And Nougat is definitely in that range of very well supported from an application standpoint. Well, that's true. And most people are on some sort of seven point X version of Android. And there are very few people who are actually using 8. It's only really people with the the newest flagship devices that most of the world are stuck using 7 or even earlier. Very true. And what reduces the sting a little bit is they've managed to stick kernel 4.9.8 under the hood. So it's a little bit newer of a kernel, at least as far as Android goes. Well, yeah, compared to most phones, that is a very, very brand new kernel, isn't it? Most devices are on sort of 2 and 3 kernels. Now, this is noteworthy because this is a this is a pretty complete effort to move Android over to x86. And the Android x86 project has been around for a while, has a pretty big legacy, and they've built in support for things like supporting EFI boot, uh, working to partition your drive. I mean, it's, it's a complete experience here. And so I think it's definitely worth trying if you're curious at all about what this would be like. I do know that there is a community project out there that is based around Oreo, so version 8 of Android. And you can find that in the XDA forums. It's called Bliss86. I'll put a link in the show notes too. Now, that's Oreo-based, so it's newer, but it's not the official Android x86 project. It's a community project. It brings a bunch of different things together. But it'll be in the links if you want to try it. Yeah, and where this really feels at home, Android x86, is on my little Vivo book that I've talked about before with um, Plasma Mobile. It's a laptop with a touchscreen, 
So it's kind of the best of both worlds. And it really makes me pine back for the days when I had a QWERTY slider phone and had an actual hardware keyboard. Android is so much better with a keyboard. But uh, I don't think I'll be ever getting one of those again. So just to be clear, this version has like the Google apps, like is Chrome installed? Is the Play Store installed? Yeah, you've got Chrome in the Play Store, which is a bit surprising to me. I don't know how they get away with distributing it. Maybe they just don't really care. I don't know. But yeah, it's fully functional with all the proprietary goodness in it, which I suppose some of the audience won't be into, but the pragmatists out there will be. It's it's just ready to go. You can install whatever apps you want and just start using it. It's available as an ISO. I mean, if nothing else, you could chuck it in a virtual machine. I'm going to give it a go after the show. Yeah, do it. I mean, if you've got a touchscreen device, try and boot it up on that because you very quickly realize that Android is not designed for a mouse. Although with this new launcher, it's a little bit more mouse friendly, but I think that ultimately there's a lot of gestures and stuff in Android that need a touchscreen, really. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. It's a whole suite, a platform, if you will, of advanced training tools to increase your skills with, around, and all about Linux. It's everything you need to learn and get hands-on experience. Specifically, hands-on, this is the stuff that really works for me. They spin up cloud servers as you need them. They're included with your Linux Academy membership at no additional cost. So you could go mess around in the lab if you want just for fun. There's no metered usage. There's no hidden fees. It just serves whatever you want to work on. And what's great about it is when you sign up with Linux Academy and you start doing some courseware, you pick which distribution you want to learn on. I think that's great, too. Think about the amount of work that goes into supporting six-plus Linux distributions that you get to choose from. But the great thing is, is they tied it in with the virtual machine. So when you select the distribution courseware, it matches that in the VM, spins up the lab, and now you can SSH into that same. Debian matches. Red Hat matches. That's brilliant. And it's something that a company full of Linux users would think of and the competition can't even conceive of. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Go there to try out those hands-on labs. Try out the self-paced in-depth video courses on every Linux and cloud and DevOps topic. From core Linux fundamentals to OpenStack and Azure and Google's cloud platform and, of course, AWS. And they have practice exams to help you get ready for quizzes. And they also have a community stack full of Jupyter Broadcasting members who are willing to help, as well as Android and iOS apps and documentation, courseware, and study tools and lesson audio that you can just download and listen to and use offline. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there to sign up for a free seven-day trial and support this show. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Okay, let's talk about elementary OS. And anyone who's been anywhere near our Linux over the last week has seen the storm, shall we say, that this caused. So Daniel Foray, the uh, great leader of elementary OS, posted a blog post on Medium that explained that although the App Center is growing and making it a little bit of pocket change, it's not doing brilliantly. And so they've thought long and hard about it and come up with a great solution. And that is that paid apps that you haven't paid anything for will not automatically update unless you put in how much you want to pay for them. And that can still be zero, but every time you get feature updates, that is going to be the case that you're going to have to keep putting in zero. Security features and OS upgrades are exempt from this, and they will auto-update if you want them to. And this is divisive, to say the least. 
So to back up a bit, you mentioned they released some details. Uh, I really, I really respect that they did this because this gives us real data to work with here, and I think it puts the entire thing in perspective. So they released their App Center in May of 2017. It's got a lot of coverage and a lot of press, and they've sold in that time about $1,700 worth of software. Well, $1,700 a day is not too bad, is it? Oh, no, hang on, $1,700 in the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a little rough. Uh, I think the average selling price was $2.30 for an app. Um, and only about 1% of their users were paying. Now, they did a poll and they talked to their user base and there was a bunch of different reasons. You don't offer a trial. I want to try the app before I buy. A lot of times I buy the app and then I forget to pay for it and there's no way for me to go back and see what apps I haven't paid for. I think there's probably a few other reasons they're not talking about either. You don't have your purchases sync across your elementary OS installs, which would de-incentivize me a little bit and would incentivize me to pay a lot more if I knew I could pay once and it would count for all of my machines. I might pay more like $15 instead of $5. But since the entire system is around the humble bundle pay-for-what-you-want-to-use amount, I don't really feel like it's unreasonable on subsequent updates to say, hey, would you like to pay for this now? You're updating it still. You're still obviously using it. Would you like to pay for it now? Do you consider it valuable? Because that's just a kind of reminder. Oh, yeah, I'm still using that great markdown editor. I probably should kick that developer a couple of bucks. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. As long as you can enter zero, then there's no problem as far as I'm concerned. But I can see why it would annoy people. But as Dan says in this post you're talking about a complete paradigm shift in how people expect to get free and open source software people expect it to be free as in beer and he says that um previously the standard was zero and now we're talking about a non-zero number it might not be very much of two dollars thirty per purchase and only one percent of people as you said but at least they are pushing forward in this new direction and you kind of have to hand it to them when I spoke to Dan on Late Night Linux, I asked him a lot of questions up front about money. And some people said that it was kind of a bit too financially heavy. But for me, the reason I did that was Elementary stands out as a distro that really is not afraid to make some money and not afraid to say this is a lot of work and we're doing this full time and we need to monetize this. And I think that you have to take your hat off to them that they are, as far as I know, unique in the the smaller distros at least i mean you've got red hat who just blatantly charge for support and all the rest of it but in terms of the so-called boutique distros most of them have a patreon and will accept donations and everything but they don't put it up front like elementary do and fair play and to be clear all of the open source free software that's that's being seeded from the ubuntu repos and being shipped on elementary os that's all going to still get updated for free Security updates, those things still get updated for free. They're not monetizing like Vim. They're monetizing applications that developers have handwritten for the elementary OS desktop and chosen to submit them to the elementary app center with the intention of attempting to monetize them. Those are the only apps that are being held for updates. Yeah, and these apps also adhere to fairly stringent guidelines, don't they, in terms of how they're put together so that they'll work well within elementary. So they're putting this out there, they're taking feedback right now, and it's going to eventually ship in the next version of Elementary OS, which will be Juno. 
You say eventually, that's probably going to be mid to late April, maybe May. And the way time goes these days, man, that's it feels like about two hours away. That's true. That's true. And we actually have a bit of news uh, for Juno while we're on the topic. There's going to be a big version jump. It's not OpenSUSE a jump to 42 big, but they will be going from version 0.5, essentially what they would have been, 0.5, to a 5.0. And like everything that Elementary OS does, it seems to be already generating quite a bit of feedback. Well, yeah, they're setting their stall out, aren't they? They're essentially saying... We're no longer a beta. We're going to be 5.0. We're a proper release. It's a proper operating system. Pay us some money to use it, please. Or not, if you don't want to. Yeah, rumor has it there's going to be a blog post out Monday or Tuesday that uh, pretty much lays out the reason for this. And uh, it does a really good job of demonstrating the remarkable progress from version 0.1 Jupiter, which was really rough, to version 5.0. And it's it's understandable, and they're kind of saying a statement now. It's it's a platform, it's an app center, it's a user community, it's a design ethos. It's it's much more than a 1.0 at this point, and so they're going the full 5.0. F- they're going full 5.0, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, again, fair play to them. It's not a distro that I am personally using, but I can see its appeal, and it, it has an appeal to people who are coming from proprietary platforms who expect a certain polish. And I like to see that. It's good that we have that in our ecosystem. But in the meantime, I'm sticking with Ubuntu, I'm afraid. Oh, I'm shocked by that. I'm absolutely (laughs) shocked. Of course, now you'll have plenty of time to implement Mozilla's new project, Project Things. Yeah, so this has been a long time coming, but now it's kind of officially announced. And it's their Internet of Things platform where they are attempting to standardize the way all these Internet of Things things talk to each other. But the thing is, do we really need another standard way to do that at this point? Because we've got quite a few already, haven't we? Yeah, I've experimented with Home Assistant, and of course I've interviewed the folks behind EdgeX Foundry, which is now part of the Linux Foundation. Those are two very different marketplaces, one's for home and one's for the enterprise. And then you bring in Project Things, which feels like it's more enterprise-focused, except for they're really specifically focused on supporting the Raspberry Pi. Yeah, and they talk about mapping out your home as well. So I think it's aimed, for now at least, at home users, but maybe they've got an eye on the enterprise down the line. Well, I think this is part of a larger strategy by Mozilla. This brings in voice control, which is using Project Common Voice. It's taking advantage of the initiatives that they've set up at iot.mozilla.org, where they've been working on a Web Things API that they're trying to get a W3 standard based around. And they've also created a Things REST API and a Things WebSocket API, and they're trying to create an industry standard as part of the Web Standards body that they would be, of course, one of the premier platforms for. And all of that said, this does actually seem like one of Mozilla's power areas. Like, this probably should be one of the things they're focusing on, and one of the things that we could use an organization like Mozilla applying a little influence over. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking, that they've got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies, and they've got a lot of money sloshing around to pay for it all. And as I always say, I'd rather an organization like Mozilla was spearheading this stuff, because if you're going to trust anyone, Mozilla seems trustworthy enough to me. Well, Joe, while you're out there buying your smart plugs and testing out Mozilla's project things, I'm going to save my pennies for a Nintendo Switch now that it looks like I'll be installing Linux on it soon. (laughs) Yeah, remember Runs Linux as a segment? Well, this is a throwback to that. Yeah. A hacker group have managed to get Linux running on the Switch, 
uh, fail overflow, they're called. It looks like it's just kind of command line stuff, and it's basically a proof of concept at this point. And it's really just a, a flaw in the boot ROM that allows you to run Linux realistically just to get pirate games running on it or at least um <laughs> homebrew stuff that sort of thing oh joe where's the trust where's the where's the trust joe <laughs> well yeah but you're not going to be running a gnome desktop or anything on it are you no that's not the point but it will push me over the edge this is one of the most wanted devices that i haven't really just gotten a chance to pull the trigger on and I got to say, what I love about this is it's taking advantage of a flaw in the system on a chip, in the Tegra X1, that executes before any Nintendo code ever starts. So they can't remotely fix this thing. Probably best case, and the failover developers are speculating this as well, best case, Nintendo could issue a new version of the Switch at some point, which ships with a patched version of the system on a chip from NVIDIA, but all of the existing switches would still be vulnerable. Yeah, I can imagine an angry phone call from <laughs> Nintendo to NVIDIA this week. What's going on? Sort this out. If, in, if Nintendo knew it was good for them, they'd leave it in there because it's just going to sell this to a bunch of Linux nerds that were already on the fence. If I can get my games on there digitally and I don't have to deal with like this horrible Nintendo online e-store thing that they have and I don't have to deal with cartridges... I'm all about it. I've got three kids, and this is the only way this kind of stuff works for us. This pushes me over the edge. The fact that I could put Linux on there, back up our stuff. I'm not even looking to pirate. I just don't want to have my kids dealing with any of that stuff. Yeah, but most people will be looking to pirate, and that's where they make their money. They don't really make the money on the hardware these days, do they? It's all on the games and the, the content that they're selling you after the fact. So I can see why they'd want to crack down on it very quickly if they can. Also, it's going to make a killer Cody box. <laughs> yeah, if you can get it to that point, which we're not there yet, but it probably won't be long, will it? Nope, we just got to get Wayland working on that thing and everything else will fall into place. <laughs> Maybe a little Plasma Mobile. And if that ever happens, we'll let you know. You can go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes and find out what's going on in Linux and the open source world every single week. Yeah, and go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And if you like what we're doing here, please consider supporting the whole Jupiter Broadcasting Network at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Bye.